Okay. We are uh, still in Romans chapter 8. And uh, last week, we uh, picked it up in verse 28, which is, of course, a favorite and encouraging verse to many of us, and one that most Christians are familiar with. And, uh, and then we kind of just began to get into verse 29, so we didn't get very far. So the study sheet that I handed out last week... Uh, for this week, actually, we'll work for next week because we didn't get to verse 31. Does anybody need one of these? Uh, let me just pass those. Okay. This is, so this says, this says it's for this week, but it's actually for, we'll work for next week because we didn't get that far. All right. Great. Okay. Well, let's, uh, Let's pick up then and read. Um, let's read uh, verses. Uh, uh, well, let's just read these three verses, 28 through 30, and those will be the verses that we work on today, and then we'll think some about things we talked about last week. In verse 28, he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, he also glorified. Okay? So, as I said last week, we looked uh, primarily at verse 28 and then a little bit uh, on the subject of God's knowledge in verse 29, which is where we'll pick it up today. So, what do you remember that we talked about last week? Uh, I think so. Yeah, look that up. Would you? 2911, I think that's it. Yeah. I think that's it. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. Jeremiah 2911, that's correct. Thank you. See, the, the advantage of me asking you guys to recall what I said last week is I don't have to recall them because, see, and then I go, oh, yeah, that's what I said last week, and then we go from there. <laughs> what else? He starts out in verse 28. He says, we know. How do we know? How is it we know that all things work together for good to those who love God? You guys obviously didn't get enough sleep last night. I'm going to have to work on waking you up. Because creation is growing and we are growing and the Holy Spirit is growing, and we're all asking God to work it together. We're all waiting for the redemption. Okay. 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 Uh, we are all looking forward to that. We are all 
groaning for it, yearning for it. What else? How do we know that all things work together for good? Pardon? Past examples. Past examples, yeah. And the verse in Jeremiah is an example. Uh, And we have the story of Joseph and many other stories in the Old Testament examples of how God took circumstances that on the surface or at at the immediate moment appeared to be situations that weren't good or or that weren't very promising and how God caused those things or orchestrated so that all these things, even things that were really evil, actually end up working out to result in good for those who love God. So one of the the ways we know is past examples. How else do we know that all things work together for good to those who love God? Pardon? Okay, the Bible says it. Okay, which is kind of the the same point we were just making. We have all these examples, but but it's the character of God, right? Because we know, because we know the things we know about God, we have this assurance that He is in fact working all things together for good. So Paul has no question in his mind, and he I guess assumes uh, by what he writes here that the Romans have no question in their mind that all things work together for good to those who love God. Does that mean that all things are good? No, it doesn't, does it? There are, There is evil in the world. There, there are evil things that happen. And there are things that happen to us that are evil things that happen to us. Okay, And, and our lives are full of stories of, of things that have happened to us that aren't good in the strictest sense of the word. But that doesn't prevent God in His providence and His sovereignty from orchestrating events in such a way so that even these bad things that happen to us actually work out for good. One guy, uh, one guy wrote a book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And, uh, and of course, it's a good question to ask. Why do bad things? I don't agree with the answer that he happened to provide. But... Uh, but it's a good question to ask. It's a legitimate question to ask. Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, because they do. But the, the assurance that we have as believers is that even though bad things do happen to us, all things are working together for good. That's why Paul can tell us, he says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And And as I understand it, as he says, in everything give thanks. He's not saying give thanks for everything. So when bad things happen to us, I don't think God's expecting us to say, well, God, I thank you that this tree just fell on my house and crushed my roof. Or, or uh, God, I, just, I want to thank you that my body, I've just discovered my body is riddled with cancer. Okay? I don't think that God expects us to give thanks for everything, but I think God expects us to give thanks in everything because we know that everything is ultimately going to work out for good to those who love God. What else? Remember anything else we talked about last week? Remember we began to explore uh, the subject of God's Knowledge. What do you remember we said about the things that God knows and how God knows and that sort of thing? What, what did we say about the knowledge of God as we began to work 
our way into verse 29. Okay, we talked about God's transcendence. Okay, and what did we say that means? He's outside of time and space. Okay, he's he's above. He's over all of his creation, so he's outside of time and he's outside. So it doesn't mean he can't enter into time. It doesn't mean he can't enter into space. That, in fact, is what the carnation, the incarnation, is. Uh, he, but he is. He is above, he is beyond, that is essential Christian doctrine. So that, so that when, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses says to God, when I go to the children of Israel and I say, uh, God sent me, and they ask, well, who is this God? You tell them what? I am has sent you, okay? And that's God saying to Moses, you tell the children of Israel, I am the transcendent God. I am the one who is above and beyond all of creation, okay? And how does that pertain then? How does this idea of God's transcendence pertain to the subject of his knowledge? He's Okay, okay. And what's the problem? That's true, but what's the problem with the way you just said that? Is that he's still not the same pattern or Well, no. I mean, that might be... all the choices that we could make and why it didn't change. He went this way, he knows that. Yeah, okay, okay. Okay, that is true, and I want to get to that, but I still want to find out what's wrong with the way he said what he said. And there's actually nothing wrong with it because you can't say it any other way, but what? Yeah, okay. Whenever we talk about God, we talk from a time, time frame of reference, right? So he used the word already, which implies time, right? So this is a struggle we have when we talk about God and we talk about what God does and what God knows is because we are so time bound, we can't think or talk in any other way. Okay, so it's very difficult for us. So even when I talk about God, I use the phrase because uh, it's the best way I know how to say it. I talk about God being outside of time, but but then I find myself talking about God experiencing everything in the present. But if I say that, I'm implying time, and and God is beyond time. This is one of the things about God that's so cool is that He is so transcendent. Okay. And then that's another thing we talk about is it will happen in God's. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, so, so this idea of God's transcendence relates directly to the issue of God's knowledge. Okay. Now that gets us to the point that Debbie was bringing up here, which is what? That he, he knows all of the choices possible, all of the things that would happen if he does this or that or the other. He, he already knows all of them. Yes. Yes. So God not only knows. All actualities. God not only knows everything that actually happens or did happen or will happen. God not only knows all of that presently. <laughs> okay. I can't get away from it. God not only knows it all presently. Okay. He, but he knows all the, so he knows all actualities, but he also knows all potentialities. He knows not only what things did happen, do happen, are happening, or will happen, but he also knows what 
could have happened, what might have happened, okay? He knows not only what are the uh, other possibilities besides the actualities, he knows all the potentialities and he knows all the contingent realities. So he knows if this happens, then this will happen. There you go. That's a good example. Another example is when Jesus is talking about uh, about Sodom and Gomorrah and he says, you know, if such and such happened, then we know Sodom and Gomorrah would have done something else. Okay, so this is this is God's knowledge. So when we use the term foreknowledge, which we encounter here in Genesis, or in, excuse me, in Romans eight twenty nine, when we encounter the, the term foreknowledge, we are speaking from a human perspective, right? We're speaking from the human perspective of of what what God knew before our experience, but not before His experience. Okay, because to God there is no time. All right. So so as we begin to explore more, and we want to talk a little bit more about this idea of foreknowledge before we go on. Uh, as, as we do that, we need to understand that Paul is speaking here from a human perspective. He's speaking about something about God before our present experience. And the present experience that he's talking about here in Romans chapter 8 is the suffering, the present suffering that we go through as children of God. So here we are, we're believers and he's been talking about how we're about, uh, as we've already mentioned, how creation is groaning and we're groaning and the Holy Spirit is groaning and, and we're all groaning. We're all longing for that revelation of the glory of the children of God. OK, that's what we're yearning for. That's what we're longing for. And we're suffering through that in our present experience. But what we are now discovering, what we want to, the question we want to ask, and this is what we talked about last week, is, is because this passage deals with issues that we debate a lot about in, in, in Christianity, like foreknowledge and predestination and calling and all those sorts of things, and we get so preoccupied talking about those issues, and those are, as I said last week, very critical issues to talk about, but oftentimes in this passage we get so busy talking about those, we miss Paul's point. And Paul's point is, in my suffering, how do I know, how can I be confident as I'm going through the suffering I'm going through, how can I be confident that this hope that I was saved in, he talked about earlier, remember he says, in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. How can I be confident that that hope is really going to be realized in my experience? Because it's not my experience right now, right? We talked about the the already and the not yet of Christian experience, okay? And so there are some things that we already have and there are some things we don't have. And even in the adoption of sons, we have it to one degree already. He says we have received the spirit of adoption 
But on the other hand, he says all of creation is waiting for the adoption of the sons of God. So there's an already and there's a not yet. There's some aspects of the adoption we already have and there's another aspect of the adoption, this revealing of glory and some other things we're going to talk about today that we haven't experienced. How can I be confident that that hope that I was saved in isn't, as we said last week, slipping through our fingers. And remember, I used the illustration, the sports illustration last week about feeling like your victory is slipping through. Well, we saw that this week with the thunder, didn't we? You know, it was it game four and they were up by how many points? You know, 12, 15, whatever they were up with. And then you just saw over a period of time, you saw that lead getting will. And, and as I was watching that happen, I was thinking that's what I was talking about last Sunday in class. I could feel it slipping through my fingers and I knew we were going to lose it. You know, I, I just felt. And oftentimes as Christians, sometimes we feel that way, don't we? We feel like that hope that we originally had is slipping through our fingers. And maybe, just maybe all that glory and everything, I'm not going to realize it. Maybe other people are, maybe other Christians are, but I'm not. How can I know that it's not slipping through my fingers? Paul's point is, it's not your fingers you need to worry about. It's God's fingers we're talking about here. Okay. That's Paul's point. And so Paul says that we know all things work together for good for those who were called according to God's purpose. So God has a purpose for all those He has called. And that's what he's going to talk about in these next couple couple verses, particularly in verse 29. What is the purpose that God has for you? And is that purpose certain? That's the question that's at stake. So in all the other things we think about when we get to Romans 8.28, when we think about predestination and foreknowledge and calling and election and, and all the issues that we debate about that as Christians, let's not lose sight of the point Paul is making. That whatever your view of Romans 8.29 is in those critical terms, whatever your view of is that, don't lose sight of the thing that Paul is saying is your destiny is certain. Okay? Well, let's explore that some more. So we were talking about the subject of God's knowledge and that God's knowledge is related tied into this whole idea of his transcendence. And now he says in verse 29, he says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And we'll get to this idea of the predestination and what that's about uh, in just a minute here. But I want to stop and think about the idea of what does he mean when he says, Those whom God foreknew. Okay? Now, when we deal with this word uh, foreknew, or the word foreknowledge, or the the noun foreknowledge, or the verb to foreknow. It's the verb form here. When we deal with this word, uh, there are several suggested uh, interpretations of the word, or definitions, I should say, of the word. Okay, And the first definition is just very simple. It's the idea of God's prescience, His pre-science, pre-knowledge, okay? Meaning his knowledge before, okay? So I may use the word, as we're talking today, I may use the word prescience. That's what, that's what I mean. 
It's talking, the word science means knowledge. The word pre means before. So it's the idea of God's knowing something before. But of course we know with God, there is no knowing before because everything is outside of time to God. Okay. Or God sees everything from outside of time. So, uh, so when we talk about God's knowledge before, we are talking from a human perspective. That God knows something before our experience of that something. Okay? So, it's the idea, the first definition of the word uh, and the number... Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and you know, remember in a dictionary, you look up a dictionary and it may list two or three or four definitions of a word. Which, word is always, which definition is always listed first? The most prominent, okay? The most prominent definition of the word foreknowledge is very simply to know something beforehand. To know something beforehand. And now the way, the way Greek works is it doesn't have to say God knew about something beforehand. In English, we always have to put the word about or of in there. You don't have to do that in Greek, okay? So... In Greek, it could just say God's, God foreknew something. What it's really saying is God foreknew something about something. Okay, And so, if it's, a, if it's an event, it could say God foreknew this event. It means God foreknew something about that event. If it's a person, it works the same way. We have an example of that in Acts chapter 26, where Paul, talking about the Jews, says they foreknew him. They knew something about him before the time that he was standing there speaking to Agrippa. He says, all the Jews here foreknew me. They knew something about me. They knew my, and he specifies what it is, my manner of life as a Jew. Okay, Acts 26, I think it's verse 5. Okay. So the idea is that uh, the, the, uh, the, the one definition, the primary definition is that foreknowledge has to do with God knows something about Something else, okay? So, in the context of Romans 8, if that is the definition that's used, it means God knows something about those whom He calls and predestines, etc., 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 okay? Uh, now, that definition is the, if you look in a lexicon or whatever, is the number one definition. It's the predominant definition. And the reason for that is because one of the ways we determine the definite primary way we determine the definition of a word is how. If you see a word, you have no clue what the word means. And so you go to a dictionary and you look it up and you think, well, I know what the definition of the word is because I looked at the dictionary. But how did the guy that wrote the dictionary know what the definition of the word was? By context. By context. By how the word is used. Okay? So he simply looks at at all kinds of writings in English and he sees how this word is used in all kinds of different places in English and he goes, okay, it's used this way here and oh, over here it's used the same way as here. And, 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 and so he looks at that and he kind of counts them up, so to speak. And the, one, the predominant one is the number one definition. Okay. Well, when we try to understand what is the meaning of the word foreknowledge, that's what we do. We, I mean, that's what we should do, okay? So we look at how it is used in its context, and from that we determine the definition, okay? Now, in every case that anybody's ever been able to find, 
of the word foreknowledge used in classical Greek outside of the Bible. So this is extra-biblical writings, classical Greek, ancient classical Greek. In every case, it simply means God knowing something beforehand. God's prescience. His knowledge about something beforehand. In every case, in the classical Greek. Similarly, in the few cases where it is used in what we call the... uh, the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha was written in are those what we call intertestamental books that some Christians believe are part of the Bible and as Protestants we don't, but we still use them as historical texts and that sort of thing. And, 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 and having been written originally in Greek, in a few cases the word foreknowledge is used there. And in each case where the use, word foreknowledge is used, there's no disagreement among scholars, or virtually no disagreement among scholars, that they all refer to God's prescience, His Knowledge about something beforehand. Okay, so uh, so we have in all of classical literature, classical Greek literature, and in the Greek portions of what's called the Old Testament by some, the Apocrypha. In those, in all of those, in every case, scholars are in in almost unanimous agreement that all of those cases it means simply God's prescience, His knowledge about something beforehand. Okay. When we get into the New Testament, we're dealing, as I said, with two words, a noun and a verb that are just closely related. The noun Greek word is prognosis. Does that sound familiar? Where do you run into that word? Medical field. Medical field. Okay. And actually, it was used in Greek in a medical sense, too. Okay. And, it, and when you talk about prognosis in reference to medical things, what are you talking about? Okay, it's what you think or know is going to happen given the present circumstances. It's your knowledge about something that's going to happen to a person given their present circumstances, so they have a prognosis. That's the noun. Uh, the verb is the, the the verb in Greek is the word prognosko. Uh, okay, and and it means uh, uh, to foreknow or or to have foreknowledge. Okay, so so these are the, these are the for the two Greek words that we're talking about here, closely related, and they are used, the, four, the two of them together are used a combination of six times in the New Testament. In all of classical literature, and in the Apocrypha, and in two out of the four, or excuse me, two out of the six times it's used in the New Testament, there's no disagreement. It means... God's knowledge beforehand. Okay. The other four instances, one of which is our passage before us today, Acts chapter 8, verse 29, there is disagreement. The other possible definitions which are given for the word foreknowledge, the first one we already have is God's prescience or His knowledge beforehand. The other possible definitions are uh, uh, to elect, to predestine or to have an intimate relationship with. Okay? Those are the other three possible definitions that are given. Now, if you look up in a major uh, lexicon of the Greek language or whatever, typically they'll give you two. They'll give you the first one that I already mentioned and then they'll give the second, which is to choose. Okay? But some commentators include these others. Two to elect, to choose or predestine, and to 
to have an intimate love relationship. I'm not going to go into all the technical stuff. You can there are volumes and volumes and volumes written on this subject over the history of the church. Okay, I'm not going to go into all that. <clears throat> but what I want to point out is that in all of these in all these cases that we've talked about so far, it only it's just generally agreed. It means this one thing. There's only four verses. There's only four instances in all of Greek literature where there's any question, where there's any debate about it. Okay, and 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 there are reasons. Remember, we said definition is determined by context. Okay, so there. So it's it's not that it's illegitimate to look at the context and say, well, does it mean something different here than it means elsewhere? But we've got to have a very good reason to conclude that it does given the overwhelming evidence that we have that it means simply God's foreknowledge. So, all of that being said, uh, what I'm, the point I, I want to make is that, as, and I'm no Greek expert, I'm no, uh, and I'm no great theologian, okay? I just have to read the experts <laughs> and try and figure out what they're saying and see if their arguments make any sense. And I cannot see any reason in Acts 8.29, excuse me, Romans 8.29, or, for a matter of fact, in the other three examples, uh, one of them's in Acts, one of them's in Peter, uh, the other one's in Romans chapter uh, chapter 11, which we'll get to in Romans chapter 11, verse 2. Those are the other three examples. I can't see any reason in any of those to interpret it, to translate the word any other way than simply foreknowledge. Okay? So what am I saying? What I'm saying is that as Paul begins to make his point about the certainty of our hope, he begins to address a certain class of people. We all agree on that. Whether you're Calvinist or not a Calvinist or whatever, we all agree that God is talking about a certain group of people. And those are the group of people whom God foreknows. Now, some people say, well, what that means is the people whom God has already had this intimate love relationship with. Okay? And, and, the, and uh, the reason they... Well, I shouldn't say the reason they do but it appears to me the reason they do that is because they want to avoid the implications of a simple, straightforward uh, translation of the word foreknowledge to simply mean foreknowledge. Okay? Because if the word means foreknowledge, it means foreknowledge about something. Okay? And my argument and the argument of many scholars is simply this, that when it says God foreknew, there's something implied there that God foreknew about us. He doesn't say what that thing is. There's a safe deduction we can make given the other things Paul says in Romans, and I'll mention that in just a second. He doesn't say what it is, but when it says, those whom God foreknew, what he's really saying is those about whom God foreknew something. There's something about this classification of people, there's something about this classification of people that God knew before these people actually experienced it. Okay, what is that thing? Well, what's interesting in 
this passage. He says, For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's talking about the process of salvation, right? If we could call it that. He's talking about salvation. As you read down through those two verses, what is the one elephant in the room, so to speak, that Paul does not mention in this process of salvation? He talks about God's foreknowledge. He talks about God's predestination. He talks about calling. He talks about justification. But there's something missing. There's something not in the list that we would assume that Paul would put in the list given what he's been saying all the way through Romans up to chapter 8. What is it? Well, yeah, but yeah, Jesus. What can I say? Yeah, obviously. Uh, But there's something that Paul's been harping on all the way through Romans. What is it? Pardon? What is that? Well, what does Paul say it is? Faith. Faith. We know that a man is justified by faith. Paul harps on that. He beats that drum. It's by faith in order that it might be of grace, in order that it might not be of works, etc., etc. And he goes, oh, you know, all of chapter 4 is an explanation about how this faith thing goes all the way back to Abraham. He's, he's harped on this. So why is it that Paul, when he gives this discussion of salvation in verse eight, in chapter 8 in verses 29 and 30, why is it that faith isn't there? Well, I would suggest to you it is there. It's not his point. It's not, it's not his point because what he's trying to emphasize here is the security of our hope in God. Okay. So, so faith is not central to the point he's trying to make. He's trying to make the point of what God is doing. So that's what he's emphasizing. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. So those are the things he's emphasizing. But faith is alluded to. It's alluded to, I believe, in the word foreknowledge. That God foreknew something about this classification of people. God foreknew something about this classification of people And on the basis of that foreknowledge, all these other things fall into place. What is it that God foreknew? Well, clearly we know that Paul has said over and over and over again throughout Romans that a man is justified by faith. But it's also, don't you think, referring back to verse 28, because 29 starts for whom... And for him, he's just been talking about it in verse yes. 8. Yes. And it says he loved God. And if we love God, the implication of the Okay, yeah, that's, that's, in, that's implied. But my point is, it all ultimately goes back to faith. Even our love for God goes back to faith. We make that, we make that commitment of faith, uh, and then our love of God flows out of it. So it all ultimately goes back to faith. So all I'm trying to say to you is that my understanding of the passage is 
of this part of the passage is that is that when he says those whom God foreknew, what he's saying is those whom God foreknew would believe the gospel. Those are the ones whom God predestined. Okay. The other primary way that the passage is viewed, and as I said last week, even though I'm belaboring this point just because I know you have questions about it, either view still works to Paul's main purpose. The other view is that the passage is saying one of those three other possible interpretations of the word. To, uh, to choose, to predestine, or to have, a, uh, to have an intimate relationship with. Okay? And I won't explain to you, I won't take time to explain why they reached those other possible interpretations. I don't agree with their conclusions, but, but they have their reasons, and, and, they are, uh, and there are many commentators and many translators who view those reasons as legitimate. So, uh, so, I, so if, you're, if you view it that way, you're certainly within great company. Okay, you're within great company, but but the the view that he may have that the verse the word really means those whom God chose he predestined. Well, that's kind of redundant. Or those whom God destined he predestined. That's redundant. Or the idea that God had an intimate relationship. And those with whom he had an intimate relationship before the foundations of the world, he also predestined. Okay, that's the other possibility. Okay, either way you view it. And let me just say this: What's interesting about those three other? I have the main definition and these three other definitions. What's interesting is commentators can't figure out which one of those three fit here. They agree it's not prescience, but they can't figure out whether it's. They can't agree on whether it's. Uh, whether it's to choose, to predestine, or intimate relationships. So you get them all, kind of all over the map on that. But whichever the case may be, and however you may view it, now obviously you know where I'm coming from, however you may view it, if you view it as those whom God knew would believe, or whether you view it those whom God irresistibly elected or chose, and that's the issue, okay? Whether you view it one way or the other, what we do know is that that group of people, whether it's those who believed and God knew would believe, or those who believed because God made them believe, either way, we know that that group of people is predestined. That's what he said, right? Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. What does that mean? That means that before we experience that destiny, God set the destiny. So God has set, if you are a believer, and whether you got to be a believer because you chose to be a believer, or whether you got to be a believer because God just made you a believer, however, whichever the case is, okay, if you are a believer, you have a destiny which God has set before you experience that destiny. You have been predestined. Now, the word predestination or predestined 
is used several different ways in the Old Testament to talk about different things. So in this verse, we need to ask ourselves specifically, what is the destiny? What is your destiny that was set by God before you experienced it? According to verse 29, what is the thing you've been predestined to? Conformed to the image of Christ. Okay, this is the thing. If you if you've trusted Christ, if you know Christ as your personal Savior, whatever things you're going through now, whatever your present sufferings are now, we know that you have a destiny. This is the purpose that he referred about referred to about in verse 28 before. He says, Mary, all things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What is the purpose? The purpose is the destiny that God set for you when you believed. Only He didn't do it then. He did it way back before because that's the whole point. All this is, is, is was, as I said last week, set in concrete before you were saved. Okay? The only thing that may not have been said in concrete, so to speak, before you were saved is whether or not you believe. We can debate about that, but we're not going to debate about it here, now, because I want to get to Paul's main point. Okay? So, so before you believe, but knowing that you would believe and knowing that He did love you or whatever, God has, has a purpose for you and that purpose is that you would be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, what is important about that is we discuss we, this issue or this idea about the image that we bear does not come up first in Romans chapter 8. Where does it come up first? Chapter 1 of... Well, Genesis. Genesis, <laughs> Genesis chapter 1. Let us make... Man in our own image. And then he said he did it. He made them male and female in his image. Romans chapter 1, verses 20, or Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We do get it in Romans chapter 1 also. But, but my point is, is that when you, when, when I say when you and I, but really when Adam and Eve were first created, when the human race was first created, it was created with the intention that we would bear the image of God. The, what we call the Imago Dei. The image, Imago Dei, God. The image of God. Okay? So, so we were originally created, humankind was originally created to bear the image of God to reflect God's image. But something went wrong. Right? What went wrong? We sin. And when we sin, theologians like to put it this way, and I think it's a good way to put it, when we sin, the Imago Dei was effaced, but not erased. What we mean by that is we still, even though we have sinned and fallen and there's all kinds of things wrong with us now, morally and physically and intellectually and in many ways, even though that is true, 
we still bear some of the image of God. But you just can't see it very well because it's been effaced by our sin. So it's been effaced. It has not been erased. Now, God's purpose in Christ is to restore to you and I that image of God. That's what he's about. That's what his purpose is. He started out. He wanted us to be in his image. He wanted us to be a perfect reflection of him to the degree that we do reflect it. He wanted it to be an accurate, perfect reflection. That was his purpose in creation and that is his purpose in salvation. To restore in us the image of God. But by the time we get to the New Testament, we've encountered something new about God that we hadn't encountered in the Old Testament. And that's the Incarnation. In the Old Testament, we don't have the Incarnation. But in the New Testament, we have the Incarnation. We have God in human flesh. So, so the way Paul puts it here now is he doesn't say that it's God's purpose that we be made return to the image of God, he says instead, the image of Christ. Why? Because we are humans. And Christ became human. Christ took on human flesh. And so in Christ we see God in flesh. Now God's purpose in saving you, the destiny He had for you when you were saved, and this was in His mind before the foundation of the world. In His mind, His destiny for you as a believer is that you, as a human being, would bear the image of God again. Just as or similar to the way Christ Himself carries in His body the fullness of the deity. Colossians. Right? So, God's purpose for us is that we would be conformed into the image of His Son. And that destiny for you was set in the mind and, can we say, in the experience of God way back before you experienced salvation. So you hadn't even been saved yet. You were still a pagan doing whatever pagans do. But when you were still a pagan and you had no thought of God or whatever, in God, with God, He was all... Can I put it this way? Again, we're struggling with this whole idea of the transcendence of God. But God was already experiencing you conformed to the image of Christ. Because He had set that as your purpose. That was His purpose for you. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, but that in itself is not the end. His his desire for you was to be conformed to the image of Christ in order that what? Verse 29. Right. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And you read that first, and you're like, 
In our experience, it will be good. In God's experience, it, it already is. But I can't. But your first question, your first question, this is the exciting thing about what Paul is saying. Your first question is, you weren't saved until you were in your 30s and you'd already lived, you know, a pagan life up to that point. I was saved when I was probably about four, raised in a Christian home. But no, I don't want to know about pagan. Okay. But here's the exciting thing. Your destiny and my destiny is exactly the same. You know, I I saved and God was gracious to me and saved me when I was four and that sort of thing. And for whatever reason, He quote waited or you wait or whatever. It didn't happen to you till you were in your thirties. But the exciting thing is, we both have the same destiny. I don't have a greater destiny because I got saved earlier. I don't have a greater destiny because I quote sinned less, which I probably didn't. But but you see. That's the exciting thing of this passage. The destiny is conformity to the image of Christ in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. What is God's purpose? God's purpose is that when all is said and done, and when the glory of the sons of God is revealed, that the new heavens and the new earth will be populated with a vast, vast, population of men and women who bear the image of Christ. So that He is the firstborn among many brethren. Now, He's not, he's not making us equal to Him because He says He is what? The firstborn. That implies His ongoing, continuing preeminence. So He continues to be preeminence. He is the firstborn. That's that, you know, within the culture of the time the Bible was written, that's the idea of preeminence or first preference, okay? So he still has his preeminence because he is God and we are not God. So he still has preeminence, but we have the privilege of calling him our brother. And we are his. And the whole world is going to be full of billions of people who are Christ's brothers, who are made in His image, who bear His likeness. It's going to be pretty fantastic. It's going to be really great, folks. And that's the revealing of the sons of God for which all of creation groans. Now, if that's our destiny, but we start out <laughs> where Chuck and Ann started out or where every one of us started out, if we start out there, but that's our destiny, how do we get from point A to point B? That's what verse 29 is about. That's what God's saying in verse 29. If my predestination, if my destiny set by God before the foundation of the earth is that I would be a brother of Christ and He would be my firstborn brother and I would join millions, billions of others in that new glorious world. How does he get me from point A to point B? 
those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, God, either knowing that you would choose to believe, or God choosing to cause you, to force you to believe, to make you believe, either way, however you view it, okay, God, foreknowing you, predestined you, and having predestined you, having set your destiny to be in the likeness of His Son and to join millions and billions of others in that likeness and enjoying that likeness forever and ever, God choosing to do that, God determining to do that, called you. Now there again, there's a word we could debate and talk about and Christians debate about. What does He mean there? Is it, is it effectual call? Is it general call? Is it an irresistible call? Is it a call we can... Re- you know, we could talk all about that. But the point is, you were called. However you view that word call there, you were called. And God called you because He was calling you, as He said in verse 28, to a purpose. He was calling you to be like His Son. He was saying to you, Come. Become that image of God I created you to be. That is my purpose for you. That is to what I am calling you. And I am calling you. And to those He called, He also justified. Made righteous. Because we can't get from point A to point B without the justification. We can't get from point A to point B without being made righteous. We cannot be like the righteous Christ without being made righteous. So, justification is a necessary process. God does that. We know how He does it. He does it by faith. Justified by faith. We know that. Okay? That's not in the passage. He doesn't mention that. He just mentions that God calls us and He justified us. And then what did He do? He glorified us. What tense? Past tense. Huh? Wait a minute. He'd been talking earlier in the chapter about all creation waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Waiting for the glory to be revealed. So, all creation is waiting. We're groaning. The Holy Spirit's having to groan for us because we're still suffering along. And now He says, oh, that's already done. It's part of the already not yet. Okay? But what we have to realize, this is what's exciting, folks. All this glory we've been talking about, and you go, okay, yeah, that's pie in the sky by and by. You know, we you hear that term a lot. You know, Christians just believe in pie in the sky by and by. Well, no, I'm afraid I don't. I don't believe in pie in the sky by and by. I believe that this is already God's experience. This is already something He has done before the foundation of the world. So I may not yet be experiencing that glory. But somehow God over here in His transcendence is already enjoying me and you being conformed to the likeness of His Son, the firstborn of many brethren. He's already experiencing it. So, as I struggle through this life 
And as I encounter the sufferings that I'm encountering, as I sometimes wonder if the victory isn't slipping through my fingers, I just need to remember this is a this deal is signed, sealed, and delivered already in the experience of God. Now there was a time in your life when you weren't saved. You didn't know what it was like to be saved. You'd never experienced it, right? But God already had. Can I say it that way? You know, I know I'm. You know, we're trying to talk about God here. This is hard. God already had. So just like there was a time in your experience when you had not yet experienced salvation, but it was already sealed with God, in the very same way, there is a time now when you have not yet experienced the glory that is to be revealed. But with God, it is already done. So, Paul will be able to go on from here and say, in the next verse, if God is for us, what do we got to lose? <laughs> what have we got to lose? This is a signed deal, folks. If you are a believer, you have a destiny that was set from before the foundation of the world. Don't sweat it. Don't lose your hope. Don't lose your faith. Cling to that hope. Remember that God has sealed you and it's a done deal. Okay? Okay? Next week, we'll go on to verse 31.